if you would turn with me to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, we'll be in verses 10 through 14. Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. And the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and the wives by themselves. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. <coughs> Growing up, I remember vividly my father reading to uh, me and my brother the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure you've uh, seen the movies or you've read the books yourselves, this a beloved children's tale by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and one of the most famous, I would say, of the books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, we have this tale of this four siblings who get taken into this wardrobe, into this fanciful world of Narnia. There, Edmund, uh, the second oldest son, the third uh, child gets taken in by the white queen and the white queen who is represents evil uh, has him betray his siblings and because he does this as we go through the story we find out he has forfeited his life to the queen she gets to take his life however at a crucial point in the story aslan steps in aslan says I will give myself in the place of this boy. I will have what is done to him be done to me. Aslan redeems Edmund from his bondage to death. It's this wonderful picture of salvation. If you read the story, you know how it ends, how Aslan is indeed mocked and he, his mane is cut. He is killed on the stone tablet and the morning after he's not there. He's gone. He has risen. It's a wonderful, it's a beautiful picture of salvation. And throughout Zechariah, as we've gone up to this point, we see that God has been emphasizing the salvation that he's going to accomplish. We see this prophecy even still today in our text. 
We have seen how this has taken part for the nation of Israel in Zechariah's time, but how it's also pointed into the future to the Messiah. This oracle, as we saw last week in chapter 12, began with a city that was being besieged, that was under attack. It is on the brink of being conquered and death. But as we go through this, as we get to the end of chapter 14, we'll see that every corner of the city will be redeemed by the Lord. And this begins with a very great victory. Once again, our passage is talking about prophecy. Or it is giving us a prophecy. I wonder if it's too hard for you to see. Look with me at chapter 10. Or excuse me, I should say verse 10. About halfway through it. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. On him whom they have pierced. Does this ring any bells in your ears? Does this strike any notes? Each of us, I assume on some level, knows about the life of Jesus Christ. And on some level, because we live where we live, we know about death, his death. Uh, each and every year, we as a nation, uh, in a way, both some religious and not so religious, celebrate Easter. And so we know the story of Jesus. We know that he was taken to the cross. We know that he was nailed to the cross. We know that he hung there. And that eventually, because the day was coming of the Sabbath day, they were going to take him down. You couldn't let him hang there on the Sabbath. And so as they took him down, they were going to break his leg. And they did this because they didn't want their prisoners running off. But they saw that he was already dead. But just to make sure, what did they do? One of the guards, one of the soldiers took a spear. And they pierced his side. And flowed out from their water and blood. And if we look in Matthew, it says very specifically, his leg was not broken to fulfill prophecy. And he was pierced to fulfill prophecy. Do you know where it quotes? Zechariah chapter 10, or chapter 12, verse 10. This is a prophecy that is fulfilled in the New Testament. And before we go on, I want you to see something also very interesting. We're going to consider this more uh, Jesus who is pierced. But look at the language it says here. They will look on me. Who is the me? God. On him. Well, wait. God's saying they will look on me and then they say God will look on him. God is of two minds here. No, we get this beautiful picture of the Trinity, don't we? Uh, we see this working here. And we'll even go on to see that how will they receive it? They will receive it, or they, it's sorry, at the beginning of it, by a pouring out of a spirit of grace. We see a wonderful picture here in the Old Testament of the Trinity, of Jesus and of God. But Zechariah gives us a prophecy. 
of the one whom will be pierced. They will look on this one. And as we go through scripture, we see it. We've already looked at in Matthew, but we can go to Acts. And Peter at Pentecost starts preaching and he says, this Jesus delivered up according delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In essence, you pierced him. You killed him. In Revelation 1-7, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. This is a repeating theme throughout redemptive history, the one who is being pierced. Isaiah as well talks about this. And so as we consider today this one who has been pierced, I want us to see three things. We're going to look at the heart of repentance. We're going to look at the source of repentance. And we're going to look at the object of repentance. The heart, the source, the object of repentance. Let's begin by looking at the heart of, the, of repentance. What is the heart of repentance. Well, it goes on here after it says they'll look on the one whom they pierced and they shall mourn for him. They will mourn for as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. The heart of repentance is sorrow. Sorrow over sin. In the beginning of Zechariah chapter 1, he said, return to me. Remember this so many weeks ago? He said, return to me. And as you return to me, I will return to you. Repentance, sorrowful repentance over sin is a returning to God. King David, after he had been called to account for his dalliance, as we shall say, with, um, with, I just lost her name, Bathsheba. I kept wanting to say Jezebel. I'm like, that's not right. Uh, Bathsheba. He said this in Psalm 51. He, he's writing about this and he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is what God wants from us, a broken and contrite heart, one that turns from sinfulness and turns to God in sorrowness and brokenness. But we see many pictures of this in Scripture. I, I was reminded of the prodigal son. We see this, right? You know this parable of the son who goes and to his father. And he says, look, you know, life in your house is all right. It's good. But what I would really like to do is for you to give me all your money that is going to be mine eventually, my inheritance, and I'm just going to go. And so the father says, okay, here's your money. He goes, and what does he do? Uh, it, in some ways, he was a modern-day Hilton daughter or Kardashian daughter, right? What do they do? They took their parents' money, and then they just go live a debaucherous life. Now we can hope. Well, that's not, I'm going to say something nasty. Uh, where does he end up? The pigs die. He spends all the money. He no longer has any more money. And they, he ends up in the pigsty. And he's sitting there in the pigsty, in the muck and the mire, eating what the pigs don't eat. And he says, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house have, better, have it better than me. Why don't I go and, and just say, hey, look, I know I've messed up, but can I at least be a servant in your house? 
So he returns. Now you can imagine at this point how hard that would be. It's not something that's just merely easily done. I'm going to go and I'm going to have to say I'm sorry. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to go work in my father's house. What is the response of the father? Now imagine for a second. I, I, they wore robes. So I'm wearing a robe of some sort. But I've, I've been in with the pigs. So now my robe is covered with pig slop and filth. And the father sees the son, and the son's walking towards him. And what does he do? He runs. He runs to him, and he embraces him in all his filth. It's a wonderful story of what happens when we turn to God with a broken and contrite heart. Zechariah uses two images uh, to show us this here as well. He says, you, this is the kind of repentance over sin that you need to have. You need to be so sorrowful over it that it's the same sorrow that a parent has after losing their only child. Amos 8.10 says, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end, like a bitter day. He says, your mourning over your sin needs to be like this. He goes on to say, your mourning needs to be like that, that happened at Hadrid Rimnan in the plains of Megiddo. Now, I'm sure that y'all know what the reference is here. But for, for just the sake of argument, I'm going to tell you what it is. That was a joke, right? We don't know what that is. And I, I had to look at it too when I got here. What's going on here? Well, at Hadran Rimnon, Rimon, King Josiah, good, great King Josiah, great name, right? I like the name. The last good king of Israel, the king who brought back the law of God, died. He was killed. And there was great mourning. The people lamented. In fact, everything that happens after this is talking about that lamenting. How the families are going to mourn. The house of David. So the king is going to mourn. Uh, Nathan, who is, represents the high priest, they're going to mourn. Not only the high priest, but the house of Levi. All the priests are going to mourn. And then all others who are still left, they're all mourning because the last great, of course they don't know this at this point, but this great king of Israel has died. There is a national outcry of mourning. Now, the closest thing I think that we probably can get to this in uh, recent history, I, I think if you look at American history, think of the day, I don't remember it now, but some of you probably remember it, the day that JFK was shot. Do you remember the outcry? I, the closest thing that I think I have for, for my remembrance maybe when Princess Diana died. I didn't quite get it, but I remember people around me were like, oh my goodness, this is a horrible thing. And, and it was a horrible thing. I didn't, I didn't have any connection to her. I didn't understand that to a degree. But you can imagine that the British people particularly, their princess had died, had been killed in this car wreck, and there was this outcry of sorrow. And he says, this is the kind of sorrow you must have over your sin, that kind of sorrow that will lead to repentance and return to God. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you have a heart that is sorrowful over your sins? Is this a deep and abiding sorrow? Now I know, particularly for this church, we know those who have lost children. We've seen the sorrow. Maybe you know others who have lost children. One of the first things that I did before I even came to this church was go with the McCalls, with Carlisle at the loss of his son. I wasn't even here. I wasn't even here yet. And that sort of sorrowful brokenness. And he says, this is the kind of brokenness you have to have over your sins. Have you ever felt that kind of sorrowful brokenness over your sin? This is the heart of repentance Knowing our sins, knowing how grievous they are. And if we're going to have this kind of sorrow, what do we have to have? We have to have a correct knowledge of the God we have offended. This perfectly holy, sinless God. And we come and we bring our sins. And we have to be sorrowful. It, it, it's a different kind of thing that I think we're used to, to have this sort of sorrow over our sins. And I think we probably get closest to it when our sins become public, right? It's hard to ignore our sins when everybody else knows about them. But how many of us have those sins that nobody else knows about, who we keep deep, deep down inside? We need to have sorrow over our sins. We need to bring them to God in repentance. Know our sins. But if we're going to come to God in repentance, then we must know and understand where is our source of repentance. We see here in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and pleas for mercy. Where is the source of our repentance? It comes through the spirit of God. He will pour his grace upon his people. Spurgeon says it this way. It is always a creation of the Holy Spirit. There never was any godly sorrow such as worketh repentance, acceptable unto God, except that which was the result of the Holy Spirit's own work within our soul. As we come mourning our sin, we understand that it is the working of the Spirit in our life. It's the kind of mourning that leads to prayer to coming before him and saying, God, I've sinned against you and I lay my sins at your feet. And there's a sort of mourning over sin that does not lead to prayer, that does not lead to repentance. You think of Pharaoh in Exodus 8.8. 8. Now, Pharaoh's been 
come, Moses has been coming to Pharaoh, and the plagues have started, and he's lamenting these plagues. And, he's, and Moses says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh was plagued by these frogs. What should he have done? God, I have been sinful. I have ignored you. I have persecuted your people. Forgive me. But what did he do? You go pray. You go pray and ask for forgiveness. So that, or ask that, he doesn't even ask for forgiveness. Ask that God will take the frogs away. Another good example of this would be Judas, right? Judas, after Jesus has been killed, he is full of regret. He takes the money. He goes and he throws it back. He says, I don't want this money. I am regretful over what has happened. He goes and he hangs himself. Nowhere does it say, and he went before God in repentance, in sorrowful repentance. He never turned to God in prayer. He never understood that the source of repentance is the spirit of God. Has the spirit worked repentance in you? Has he revealed to you your sin? Has he convicted your heart? Has he pressed upon you the need, your need for a savior? If so, then turn to him in prayer. Let the spirit outflow from you. Prayer is the outflowing of repentance. It recognizes the work of the spirit and it responds to him. Zechariah says here, this work of mourning over their sin comes from a pouring out of a spirit of grace. Turn to him in prayer. We are to be a people of prayer at all times, no matter what our struggle, no matter what our sin, knowing that we have a spirit in us, we are to turn to him. Who is the him? This is our third and final point today, the object of, of our repentance. If the spirit is the source of our repentance, what is the object of our repentance? We are to look to him whom whom they pierced. We are to look to Jesus, one who was wholly pure, one who was never sinful. We're to look to him who came and had compassion on a sinful people. I think at times the temptation can be, or uh, it can be easy for us to grow callous to the suffering we see around us. There are many people are suffering. We indeed ourselves might be suffering and it can be kind of come blase or just whatever. I think even as we look on Jesus Christ, it can at times be easy for us to, to become callous to his suffering. What do I mean by this? You've heard the story of Jesus over and over again, haven't you? I, in fact, began by telling you just in, in a brief statement about what happened to Jesus. And it can be easy sometimes to just look over it. Yes, 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 Daniel. We understand. Jesus, he died for our sins. Yeah, that was gruesome. Yeah, very gruesome. Bloody, we understand. Yeah. We, we've heard it before, though. Thank you. Thanks for reminding us. That's a good reminder. Thank you. And, and there's a sense where I don't think we, we intentionally become callous, but we can become callous to the suffering of Jesus. 
Isaiah 53, 5 says, remember, this is the one he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The reality is this, the suffering of Christ was very great. But I think the other thing we fail to do or to understand is this. The physical sufferings of Jesus were nothing compared to the spiritual suffering of Jesus. The physical suffering of Jesus was nothing compared the physical suffering of Jesus was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering. J.R. Packer says it this way, the physical pain, though great, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief suffering were mental and spiritual. And what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself. Let that sink in, what Packer's saying here. He was on the cross for some 400 minutes. And each minute was packed an eternity of suffering. This is a great, uh, I think it's a staggering, yes, it's just trying to give you an impression of the, what happened, but it's a great uh, picture of the suffering of Christ. That what he really suffered, yes, his hands were pierced, yes, he was nailed, yes, he was beaten and yes he had a spear stuck in his side but the real suffering of the cross was when God the Father inflicted him with the judgment and wrath that was ours and on the cross Jesus bore it and so we look to him and we are to mourn. There's a hymn, I can't remember the title of it at this moment, but it says this. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Our sins held him to the cross until they were fully and wholly paid for. As we come into repentance, we are to understand that he is our object. We are to look to him. Saving repentance is always joined to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus in his conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus said. If you remember this, in John we have this conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you must, there's two musts there. You must be born again. But then he goes on to say, and the son of man must be lifted up. He had to be punished for us. 
So we're to come to him. We're to look to Jesus. The devil delights in the moral man. The devil delights in the moral man. The devil delights in the man who says, I will strive and endeavor to live morally. But never looks to Jesus. We sang this morning, Rock of Ages, and I tried to draw your attention to that third verse. Not the la- or nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's nothing that we do. We cling to Jesus. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Notice here that word there is F-O-U-L. Foul. What does that mean? Disgusting. Wearing robes covered in pig feces and pig slop. Literally. Foul I to your fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Wash me, Savior. Only in Jesus is there cleansing from this sort of foulness. Jesus is speaking a word of grace to you. We read this morning as we're looking about those passages, talking about Jesus being pierced, we read Roman, or Revelations 1 and 7. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Note what, note what it says here. Every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. Who will mourn over the death of Jesus? All men. Even those who have crucified him. Some will look at Christ and will be saved. Some will receive eternal judgment. They will mourn over their sins. They will mourn over the death of Christ. But it will be not unto salvation, but to their own destruction. Jesus speaks a word of grace. He is calling to you. How will you respond? As the Spirit goes forth, as He works in individuals, do you hear that calling? How will you respond to Him? Look to Him rightly, mourn your sins, find in Him salvation for your souls. Is Jesus truly the object of your repentance? We are to look on him who was pierced for us, on our Savior, who has brought us out of death into life. This is what we're about to come and do. This table represents the very thing that we're talking about. Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out, his body pierced for you. How will you respond? We are to come and respond with sorrow, with a deep and abiding sorrow, trusting in Christ alone, the one who has saved us, who has delivered us from death into life. 
We are to trust in him. We are to rest in him. Are you resting and trusting in Jesus Christ? The gospel is open here before you today. Turn. Turn to him. If you've never turned, then turn to him in sorrow for your sinfulness. If you know him, then turn again. Bring to him your sin. Bring to him the things that you are not willing to let go of and say, Jesus, I surrender all of me to you. Take and use me for your glory, for your, the service of your kingdom. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gospel so clearly shown to us here in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Lord, would we have true sorrow over our sins? Would we turn to you in faith and repentance? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.